Welcome to Your Strata Property, the podcast for property owners looking for reliable, accurate, and bite-sized information from an experienced and authoritative source. To access previous episodes and useful strata tips, go to www.yourstrataproperty.com.au. Hello and welcome. I'm Amanda Farmer and I have Rena Van Alst from Strata Central with me today. Hey, Rena. Hi, Amanda. How are you? I am doing very well. I am excited actually today because last night I attended one of my first AGMs in person since about March. It was very exciting. Wow, that must have been quite unusual. Did they actually observe all the social distancing requirements and was it a big meeting, Amanda? Absolutely, yes. It was an AGM. It was a long one. There were a few controversial things on the agenda and that's why this building chose to have the meeting in person. I was there as a proxy holder for one of the lot owners and the venue that it was held at was very, very large. There were seats spaced, I think, two metres apart from each other. It was all a little <laughs> bit weird looking actually. Many people attending were wearing masks. We are in Sydney and there is no compulsory requirement to wear masks at the moment. But yeah, a lot of people were and I felt very comfortable and COVID safe so far. This is the day after, so we'll wait, we'll wait and see. Oh, uh, but it was, it was nice to be out in person and uh, out of, I was going to say wearing clothes. I do wear clothes at home. Uh, and <laughs> <laughs> out in person and catching up with some humans in real life. Yes. Yeah, it's, it's really funny. Yesterday I actually had two Zoom meetings. One was one hour and one was an AGM last time was three hours, which is highly unusual for me to have a meeting that long on 14. It was only a small building in terms of the number of lots. But of course, there were contentious issues to discuss there also. But I find it matter now that when we do go out, it just seems like really strange to have physical meetings. Whereas mm. you think about how long we've been doing this for so many years, like that's the norm. And it's funny how your mind over the last four months starts to sort of condition itself to a new normal. And then it's like as if having crowds and having meetings physically is like a distant memory, even though it's only four months in, in the scheme of, of how long I've been managing buildings and attending meetings, it's a small amount of time. Yet it feels like you were saying, oh, let's, you know, it's nice to be out with real people. And yeah, I think it's testament to how adaptable we are as human beings that we yeah. get used to these new regimes fairly quickly and feels a bit old fashioned now to be yeah. having meetings in person. Especially large ones too, Amanda. Mm, yes, indeed. Well, Rena, we are going to jump into our wins and challenges for the week, as we like to do when we're chatting together on the show. Kick us off with what's challenging you. Yeah, well, following on just from your introduction, Amanda, about people wearing masks at meetings, one of my schemes at Potts Point, which is a, like a large building, are very concerned about the recent outbreaks that have occurred in, in two of the restaurants there and mm. um, also in Darling Point. So one of my community members asked me, can we make residents and visitors wear a mask when they're in common areas? Because the building manager is quite, you know, concerned for his safety as well. And he's obviously wearing one, but I thought to myself, well, normally, you know, unless there's a probably a public order, but even if there was a public order, it's not actually a public space. So I wanted mm. to get your thoughts, Amanda. I know that a bylaw would be the ultimate way of doing it, but is there anything that we can do until such time? Or have you had any questions in relation to this sort of aspect? 
That's a really, really tricky one, particularly when we're talking about being on the common property. So we may have seen, and as I've said, Rena and I are in Sydney, we're not uh, in Victoria where there is the, a mandatory requirement for masks in public places. In Sydney, we do see when we go to the shops, for example, mm. that there are certain shops, the Apple store is one of them that I go past regularly, that mandates masks being worn. If you want to enter this premises, you must wear a mask. And that is their conditions of entry, if you like. Some shops are doing temperature checks. So that's a condition of mm. entry that you have to get your temperature tested. When we're talking about our strata buildings and we're talking about people who live in these buildings, that's their home. As you said, Rena, it's not mm. a public place. It's a private place. And the question is, what authority do owners corporations have to regulate these private spaces? Now, from my point of view, I think an owners corporation that determined, and I'd be saying determined at a general meeting by resolution to make a condition of entry for visitors, for contractors, for what let's call third parties, not necessarily mm. residents, people where it's their home, a condition of entry for those people is that they must wear a mask. I think that's okay. I think they'd, they'd get away with that, let's say. Yeah. I think that if you were to make that a condition for people who live there, for residents, even if you're just saying on the common areas – I think that's a little bit different. That is somebody's garden, for example. That is somebody's terrace area, maybe, that if they were in a freestanding home, they would use uh, without those kinds of intrusions on their privacy. If you did put it in a bylaw, as you say, Rena, and you had a resident challenge that, they may have some grounds to say that that is harsh. Yeah. Well, I think the question arises, Amanda, in this building, more in terms of when they're in the lift, perhaps, because obviously um, sometimes, even though you may have the one square metre rule, sometimes you do find other residents coming into a lift, even though it says you can only have one person depending on the size of the lift. And also like perhaps, you know, in the corridors, in the hallways, not so much perhaps in people's private areas and terraces and so forth or balconies, but more when they're actually you know, walking through and transporting, you know, goods, going shopping, you know, coming up the lift, coming, you know, walking down the hallway into their apartments, perhaps even maybe outside in the garden areas if there's any shed or the garbage room when you're entering a garbage room and so forth. What about those types of areas, Amanda, where there's more like, you know, especially in older buildings when there's, you know, the hallways, even in new buildings, I mean, the hallways aren't that, that large, even in new buildings and people, you know, can congregate, you know, if they're sort of all coming out at the same time or... Yeah, there's still something about that that makes mm. me feel really uncomfortable. Yeah. And when I was referring there to garden areas and terraces and, say, swimming pools or gyms, I am referring to common spaces. So if somebody's got a roof terrace that they use for their barbecues or there's a nice sunny spot up there that they go to or to hang out their washing, then these are places that people are using as part of their home in the yes. same way that you would if you lived in a freestanding home and you had these areas. So there is an argument there, I believe, for a resident to say that that's a, a high restriction on their use of their own home, those parts of their premises. And if we do go back to the public health orders, at least in New South Wales, those orders were very clear in defining a place of residence as including entrances, exits, passages to and from, hallways, stairs. The definition of that place of residence, when I looked at it, I took the view that that included all of those common areas and our state government was not regulating all of those areas within our strata schemes. So for an owners corporation to, for example, pass a resolution or a bylaw that restricted residents in that way, oh, I think yeah. you have to be very, very careful about that. Yeah. So however, though, Amanda, if there was a mandatory mask policy 
put forward by the state government in future, if we were to go down the same path as as Victoria, then obviously that we wouldn't be having this conversation. <laughs> well, we might because I think Victoria, when they had their public health orders, their former public health orders back in March, April, I was talking to Victorian strata lawyers then, and their orders were much broader than ours in that they did cover places like swimming pools and gyms in apartment buildings, and they closed those down. Yeah, our public health orders in New South Wales never did that. As I said, no. they never touched those common areas in strata schemes. So I'd be querying, I wonder if we do have that mandatory mask order in New South Wales, would they address that then in those new orders mm. and address those common spaces? Uh, I'd suspect probably not. They'll probably yeah. be overlooked again. Yeah, um, I think you're right. But looking at whether a bylaw then in a strata scheme that may reflect what's going on in the public spaces, maybe that gives that bylaw some more weight, some more reasonableness, makes it less harsh perhaps. So yes, I think we'd be having a different conversation and, and giving that kind of proposal some different yeah. consideration in that situation. So I suppose in this particular context, Amanda, I think the best thing is to say what you've suggested, which is to pass a resolution to make sure that visitors and third parties, contractors, etc., wear a mask. And I think if there is a public order moving forward, even though it does not contain any reference to a residence as defined in, in your previous terminology, then we could always just ask owners as just as a courtesy if they would wouldn't mind doing it, but obviously not have it in any way, shape, or form as a mandatory requirement. Yeah, I think that's a great point. Residents can definitely opt in and voluntarily do that, especially if they are concerned for themselves. Absolutely. I'm sure there's plenty of residents who have that own personal policy at the moment going in and out of their apartments. Of course, all of this, Rena, as we do say on the podcast, is guidance. It is not advice. It is our general discussion, tossing around some issues here. So buildings who are really thinking closely about these issues and with concerned residents and committee members who are being asked whether or not this is a path they should be going down, definitely seek some specific legal advice, uh, preferably from a strata lawyer who understands this strata stuff. But yeah, those are my thoughts and watch this space. Let's see how things progress. Thanks so much, Amanda. You give me so much to think about and to guide my strategy. (laughs) Indeed. (laughs) Guide, not advise. (laughs) Excellent. Thank you, Rena, for asking that one. Very topical one at the moment and a few buildings thinking about that, I know. I am jumping into my challenge for this week. This is one that I am seeing come up again and again, Rena, and it's come up in my own building a couple of times. It's about voting rights and deceased estates. So where an executor under a will is communicating with the strata manager saying, hey, I am the executor for the estate of Mrs. Smith. Sadly, she has passed away, owner of lot four, and I am now going to be handling her affairs. We are attending to all the usual probate requirements. And in the meantime, I want to attend meetings and I want to vote on behalf of lot four. Happens all the time. Would I be right in saying that, Rena? Quite common? Yeah, it does actually happen, Amanda, quite often. And people sort of send us documentation like powers of attorney, even though someone's deceased and and various documentation that we don't really have any experience or understanding of, especially as their legal documents. And this is probate and think, well, you know, luckily, I mean, I've got my own advisor at home, which is great. But I mean, it does happen quite often. And sometimes we are at loggerheads with people when we say they can't vote. 
Yes, and that's what I have seen come up a couple of times in the last few months. So I thought I'd bring it to the podcast. What is the law when it comes to an executor, for example, or a, a beneficiary under a will or a next of kin, even if there is no will? Do they have a right to vote at meetings of the owners corporation? Now, in New South Wales, we need to look to Schedule 1, Clause 23, which tells us who is entitled to vote at general meetings. And that clause says that each owner has voting rights at general meetings, but only if they are shown on the strata roll. And if they are a company, then the company nominee must be shown on the strata roll. So an executor who is not on the strata roll is not entitled to vote. But I know what you'll tell me, Rena, is we have executors writing to us giving us Section 22 notices and requesting that we put them on the strata roll. That's correct. So is that executor, if they've given you a section 22 notice, which is a notice of a right to cast a vote at the meeting, can that person then be put on the strata roll and can they vote at a meeting? Well, section 22 says that a person who has a right to vote at meetings must notify the owners corporation of that interest. And the advice that I have given recently is that an executor Because they are not an owner, they are not the registered proprietor, they don't have a right to vote. So even if they fill in a Section 22 notice, great, we now have an updated address for service perhaps and we know who they are, but simply by filling in that Section 22 notice, it does not give them a right to vote and does not permit the strata manager to put that person's name on the strata roll as the owner. They can put their name on the strata roll as the executor, but they can't put their name on the strata roll as the owner. That's very interesting, Amanda, because anyone can really fill out a Section 22 form. I mean, it's Mm -hmm. not exactly something that, you know, you can't get a hold of. So, yeah, I think strata managers do have a lot of problems in this area and it's good that we're getting some of your guidance, Amanda, on this. Yes, so bear in mind that the owner is defined, the term owner is defined in our Act in Section 4 as a person who is recorded on the register as someone entitled to an estate in the lot. Now, the register is not defined, but it has the same meaning that our Real Property Act gives it. That is the register that's maintained by the land registry, what we'd call the Torrens title register. So it's the registered proprietor, the person whose name is on the title. That is the owner. And an executor is not the owner, may never become the owner. Let's bear that in mind. Mm. The executor is not always the beneficiary of the lot, may not be the person to which the property will ultimately be transmitted. The executor is not on the register, not the owner. Now, different, of course, if the executor tells you, well, in fact, I happen to be the owner because we have transmitted the lot into my name and I am holding it as trustee for the time being and here is a copy of the title which says Mm. that I'm the registered proprietor. That is a different situation and indeed, yes, they are the owner and they can vote. But if the title is still in the name of the deceased person or it's in the name of somebody completely different, a beneficiary, then just by virtue of being the executor does not give that person a right to vote at meetings. Yes, Amanda, I recall a situation where we had someone that wrote to us and then when we, I think, went back to you and and sought your advice on the matter, they then provided us with a conflicting version or advice from their lawyer. And I sort of wanted to myself, like, 
I think the meeting wasn't a very contentious one at the time. And I was just wondering why someone would go to such an effort to really make a big deal about being able to vote when there's nothing that there was on that affected them in that particular meeting mm. in terms of voting. And I could, I mean, they weren't going to be, it wasn't as if there was a special levy or, or some bylaw that would adversely affect their property or anything. And I, it's just interesting, I think, sometimes when, especially managers, we're, we're unsure in terms of the law, but then also being unsure of people's motives at times. I think, you know, mm. sort of um, sometimes you have to sort of wonder like where people are coming from when, to me, the ability to vote in such circumstances is not sort of the end of the world. Yeah. Well, I suppose nobody wants to be denied their right if they do Correct. have one. And indeed, this process sometimes of administering an, an estate can take some time. It mm. may be a number of years, especially if there are some Family Provision Act issues to deal with and claims on the estate. And perhaps the executor is thinking, well, I don't necessarily want to be locked out of having a say in what's going mm. on in the building for a couple of years, I need to make sure that I get myself on the roll and I'm able to vote. So it is hard. You're right. And the situation that you're thinking of there, Rena, we did have to have a little bit of back and forth explaining mm. how the legislation worked because it wasn't that person's uh, belief or understanding that that was mm. right or fair or correct. But that's what it is. Yep, it is what it is. And thankfully we have we had you, Amanda, to help us with that particular situation. Yeah, good one there to clarify. And uh, I know many strata managers out there are faced with that regularly. So if you've got some more questions there, I've left that pretty high level, but if you've got some more questions there about some specific situations and you need some references to legislation, definitely post us a comment there under this podcast episode on the website yourstrataproperty.com.au forward slash podcasts. Okay, we are going to shift over to what I hope will be a win for us this week, Rena. Have you got one? Yes, actually, this is a very interesting one in terms of my experiences with people who sometimes exhibit bullying behaviour. And this particular person used to be on the Strata Committee in a building that we took over um, about a year and a half ago. And basically there's a number of defects in the building, which of course, you know, cause problems for most people in terms of, you know, the, the value of their property. And especially now with this recent defects in other buildings and banks not lending. And so it puts a bit of a, a bit of stress and anxiety, you know, in people. Anyway, and then what happened also is that this building is part of a BMC. It's a two-member BMC where, you know, one building contributes three quarters of the levies, the other building, which is not strata, it's a stratum lot still owned by the developer. And so it's basically the share facility register is three to one, which is actually reflective and accurately in terms of the facilities there, but it's not reflected in the voting rights. So basically each member has equal voting rights. And on one hand, you can understand, you know, that would be the case in some way because you couldn't have the dominant member having all the votes, otherwise the minority member would, would never be able to achieve anything. But of course, as we know, these documents are all part of your sale of contract, Amanda, but people don't really understand these things when they're buying into a property. And therefore, he's been sending emails which have been quite aggressive and, you know, like verging on, you know, very rude defamatory behaviour, tone, context, and so I tried to respond to like I'll send it to the committee, and then he and then he said to me, "Oh no, my email footer says this is confidential, and you can't. Oh. You know how the email footers say if you get an email accidentally, yeah." So I said, "No, no, that doesn't work." I said, "You know, you are on the you are the chairperson. You know how these things work." 
Then another email came back. And so then I reached out to the chairperson and to the building manager that you know him quite well to try and see if I could get them to sort of reason with him because I wasn't really interested in, in engaging anyway. And so of course that didn't work. And then he became even more aggressive and said that you're trying to get other people to speak to me, et cetera, et cetera. Anyway, so then I decided, you know what, I'm just now going to be strong and I'm just going to say exactly what I think. And I just went for it. I said, you know, basically in a very non-emotive factual way that I didn't understand what he wanted me to do. I couldn't change the BMC. I couldn't change how the structure had been put in place prior to us even being appointed. And, and secondly, these are things that owners should be aware of. And I know that they aren't because it's not explained to them when they purchase perhaps. Anyway, and so I sent this email, I think a few weeks ago, um, waiting for us, I would term a spray back from him because that's just how he's been reacting. And apparently it's nothing, not a word has come out of his not one email. And I spoke to the building manager and I said, oh, you know, have you heard from him? He said, yeah. He said, he hasn't said a word to me about it. So um, sometimes I think we're afraid to sort of just be firm and assertive and because we're trying to, you know, you're trying to keep the pieces and manage, you're trying not to, you know, rock the boat and, you know, be as harmonious as possible. But sometimes there's got to be a limit. And I think sometimes when you stand up for yourself, I mean, I can, I'll let you know in future what happens if, if anything does change. But so far, I think by me standing up and being quite strong, firm, non-emotive but factual in terms of my response has achieved the best outcome and everyone said he's not said a word. So mm. I think that's a really big win for someone that's been taunting me for the last three months. <laughs> yes. It sounds to me, Rena, like what you did is say, this is the boundary. This yes. is the line. And you don't cross this line. And if you cross exactly. this line, this is what happens. You've set that boundary. He can now see it. Perhaps he recognises that he was crossing it, mm. didn't realise it was there. And you've been quite clear about your limits. And mm. as you said, factual, non-emotive, this is the law, this is what the SMS says, mm. this is what the, how BMC operates, mm. can't change it. And that's solved the problem so far. I was very worried about it when I sent the email. I'm thinking, oh, you know, I was expecting like another big spray, but it's been three weeks and it's been, yeah. So hopefully um, I won't have to report this ever to you again. <laughs> yeah. yeah, very good. Thank you for sharing that. And I think so helpful for many, many of our strata managers who are listening. It can be a uniquely female thing. Let's say that we are carers, we are givers, we want to help, we, we listen, we want to fix a problem, do everything we can. It makes us such good professionals and such good strata managers in particular. And that's why we see so many female strata managers all doing so well. But sometimes we do forget to set those boundaries and mm. to make that clear. We think it's clear, but to be absolutely clear with somebody who does have the tendency to be a bit of a bully that, buddy, this is the boundary. Here it is. Don't cross it. This is what you exactly. get. Exactly. <laughs> okay. Well, I don't have anything as uh, exciting as that for my win, Rena. <laughs> Going back to the, the, the boring law, I've recently been assisting a client who was involved in some litigation in our courts, not the tribunal. And the client was sadly unsuccessful in their litigation and had a cost order made against them. So they had to oh. pay uh, not just my fees of the litigation, but because they lost. And when you're in uh, this particular court where we were, if you lose, the general rule is that costs follow the event, which means that the loser pays 
the other side's costs as well. And my client was ordered to pay the other side's costs. And what happens in that situation is usually after the decision is handed down, the cost order is made, one party will contact the other and say, can we agree on what the cost should be? Or do we have to go and have the costs assessed by an expert costs lawyer? And we do that in New South Wales by application to the Supreme Court. We call it an application for costs assessment. Now, in this case, the two parties were not able to agree on an amount that should be paid for the other side's costs. Uh, my client thought the other side's costs were quite exorbitant, quite frankly. There were, was a fair bit of money there for a barrister's fees, for solicitor's fees, and I encouraged my client to get some advice from a specialist cost lawyer, so a firm that only deals in costs, and that cost lawyer had a look at the other side's bills and said, well, I think this is what a reasonable amount should be for costs. The other side wouldn't accept that, so because we hadn't reached an agreement, we had to go through that cost assessment process. Um, is that a process you've been through before, Rena, with any of your buildings involved in litigation? Yes, we have been actually, Amanda, and... Um Unfortunately, sometimes I think when lawyers act for, for owners' corporations, sometimes I think because they're not actually just dealing with one person as a client, it, it's, it's an entity. Mm. Sometimes I find that I think costs sometimes can blow out a bit for that reason and where there's sort of no oversight. I think also because strata managers aren't aware of the law in terms of cost agreements and lawyers actually having to provide a cost disclosure, how that has to work. Also, I think in the Legal Profession Act, there is a, a section where it states that once the limit of the legal fees has been reached, then the cost agreement must be revised and an estimate must be provided to the client to advise them of the additional fees. Now, we know a lot of man that doesn't happen. Now, I know that because I've unfortunately have had to be involved in a lot of these situations where costs have blown out or we've inherited buildings where costs have blown out. But definitely a matter that it happens quite often, I think, when it gets to the, to the court situations that you're referring to. Yes. And so if you do think, if you're in litigation and you've been ordered to pay the other side's costs and you do think that they are unreasonable, they perhaps weren't disclosed, and that's what you're talking about there, Rena, yes. proper cost agreement with with an accurate estimate, that estimate being updated if there is a change, then you do have grounds to object and to only pay what should have been the reasonable costs in the circumstances of that particular case. So to determine what's reasonable, you go through this process of cost assessment where an assessor looks at the bills and makes a determination and the parties are then bound by that determination. Now, going back to why this is a win for my client, <laughs> uh, as I said, we engaged a cost lawyer on uh, on our side to help us to make a decision about what was reasonable and to help us to make submissions to the cost assessor because we did end up in that process. And the cost assessor reduced the costs of the other side to a significant extent. There was about 30% was knocked off the lawyer's bill. That was 30% less than that my client was ordered to pay than they would have been if they didn't go through this process of cost assessment and spending that little bit of extra time and money with me and a specialist cost lawyer to put their objections together, their submissions together on the cost assessment and have those fees reduced. So it's not a path that is always recommended. And indeed, if you can agree on an amount to settle a cost dispute, that is always the best option. And in some cases going to be the cheaper option. But if you do go through that process of cost assessment, as this client chose to do, then there can be a more reasonable outcome there for you as well. And that's, of course, what the process is designed to do. 
And another thing to add, Amanda, also I think for strata managers is sometimes when our clients say, can you please get this bill assessed? Because obviously some people do know about this process. But what I've learned is that after 12 months, once the bill has been issued, there's a 12-month window in which to have legal fees assessed. So if there's a building where there's been multiple invoices issued over a period of of time, you need to make sure that the first bill that that is included in that 12-month period, otherwise, if you only ask for it and it's already been more than 12 months, then that first bill perhaps is not included. That's what I've been told. Is that correct, Amanda? Yeah, it's something that definitely needs specific advice from a lawyer who is familiar with that part of the law. Uh, It's not strata law. It is cost law. There may be some strata lawyers out there more familiar with costs than I am. But what you're talking about there, Rena, is the right that a client has, and this is in our New South Wales legislation, uh, which I think is fairly uniform across the country, to challenge a lawyer's bill and to query it and to ultimately have it checked by a cost assessor. That's different to the situation that I was talking about where we've had costs ordered by a court. Um, Costs are then assessed on a different basis than if it was a solicitor, what we call a solicitor client cost dispute. A court-ordered cost assessment is a party-party cost dispute and a solicitor client is what you're talking about there if a client is not happy with their lawyer's bill. There are definitely time limits on that. There's definitely a process for that and... It is not one that I see happening all that often, and I think it would be a rare case where that would be appropriate. I think the bottom line is that lawyers need to be very aware, very conscious of their legal obligations to be properly disclosing their fees, entering into valid cost agreements with buildings. I think most strata lawyers out there are very experienced with that. And it's good for strata managers to be aware of, as you're saying, Rena, those obligations so they can be checking up on that for their clients as well. Yeah, definitely, man. I think none of us want at the end of the day to have a bad taste in our mouth when legal advice is being given and it basically blows out to the point where whatever the issue was, it's now, you know, not worth even worrying about because the legal fees have totally outweighed what the dispute was if it was a monetary one. Yes, definitely. Yeah. Do you know, I think we could have a whole podcast episode on costs <laughs> and legal costs. Maybe I can bring in one of those costs experts. It's something that I'm always very open about with clients, costs, and give as accurate estimates as I can. And I think if you do that, don't shy away from that conversation, whether you're a strata manager or a committee member, a lawyer, then it just gets everything started on the right foot for sure. Yeah, definitely. Okay. Wow. Jam-packed. Lots that we covered in there, Rena. Anything else for today? No, all good, Amanda. Just looking forward to the weekend. Yes, we are recording this on a Friday. We are moving into our weekend. And uh, stay safe, everyone, wherever you are around the country when this is going out. Who knows what's going to be happening? And we will look forward to catching up with you again very soon. See you next time, Amanda. Bye. Bye. Thank you for listening to Your Strata Property, the podcast which consistently delivers to property owners reliable and accurate information about their strata property. You can access all the information below this episode via the show notes at www.yourstrataproperty.com.au. You can also ask questions in the comments section, which Amanda will answer in her upcoming episodes. How can Amanda help you today? today?